Well, good morning, Steamtown Church. Uh, good morning, online. It is awesome to be able to worship in person and online. And um, I give, give a shout out to uh, Carlos there. I'm always blessed when you're on that drum thing back there. Uh, it's it's an awesome Sunday. Um, Isaac and Melissa Newman, it's their last Sunday with us. It's not awesome because it's their last Sunday with us. It's awesome because we have one more chance to be together, and you guys have been so faithful to Steamtown Church. Love you guys. So following the sermon, uh, we are going to pray over the Newmans as they're going to be moving to San Diego. Um, love you guys. If, uh, if you have a copy of uh, God's Word, the Bible... And it's going to be hard for me speaking from this mic, like, you know, to contain Dennis is a hard thing to do to one spot, but I'm going to try my best. So if you have a copy of the Bible, stay contained, and please turn with me to John chapter 3. The title of today's sermon is Nicodemus, the teacher who didn't understand. Now, I, I love this summer series. Um, where we've been able to have a number of preachers just share what God has been placing on their hearts. And so, so this Sunday is going to be, it's going to be no different. And, and so this Sunday, um, I couldn't help but think that I would love to teach on what I call my life verse. See, it's kind of cool, like, and not cool at the same time. In Christian circles, sometimes you'll hear this language like, yo, what's, what's your life verse? Like, like, since you accepted Christ as your Savior, like, what's the verse that you, you keep coming back to over and over and over again? It, it defines your life. It has changed you for, forever. And, and for me, um, the, the verse that has spoken to me in a very special way is John chapter 3 and verse 16. Now, I happen to also pick um, a verse that is also one of the most famous verses that, that exists, uh, John three sixteen. So how many of you have ever seen those crazy people who hold up John three sixteen signs? You ever see those crazy people? Ever see those crazy people? Case in point, maybe? Case in point, you ever see those crazy people who, who hold up John 3.16 like at sporting events and political rallies and wh wherever and whenever they can get a chance, okay? But even crazy people can have life verses, right? And so I'm holding up a piece of cardboard with John 3.16. And John 3.16, what it says is this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but check this out, have everlasting life. So that's my life verse. And this morning what I'd like to do is I would like to look at the greater context of John chapter 3 to see why this verse is placed where it is in the Bible. So look with me at the book of John starting in verse 1. Verse 1 reads, John chapter 3 and verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That would be the Sanhedrin. So in verse 1, we meet this, this guy. And even if you don't know what a Pharisee is, even if you don't know what the Jewish, Jewish ruling council is, you could quickly conclude from a casual reading of John chapter 3 that this guy's no joke that Nicodemus is not an ordinary man in society. 
Verse 1 makes it clear that he was a Pharisee. Now check this out. That means that this guy, by, by the time he was a teenager, there was only a few thousand Pharisees in all of Israel. That by the time he was a teenager, he would have had the entire Old Testament memorized. He would have known the 613 laws of Moses, the mitzvah. Sorry, that's a hard, hard Hebrew word to pronounce. And he would have known the additional teachings on top of the 613 laws of Moses. He would have known the Talmud and the Mishnah. He would have known the oral traditions within Judaism. Verse 1 says that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. That, that when you would see a Pharisee, you would conclude that that individual, that man in um, uh, Jewish society was a good man. He was a respectable man. He was a religious man who was an expert in the law. Now, before we get to Jesus in this narrative, it is important to realize that the Pharisees were enemies of Jesus. Additionally, what does is, what is verse 1 say about Nicodemus? What is the other piece of information that we, we gather here? It says Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, but he was a member of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. If this existed in America today, it would mean that 70 individuals who were referred to as judges in society would serve on the Supreme Court. This was like the Supreme Court in Israel, the highest governing authorities in the land. And according to numbers, there could only be 70 of these individuals plus one. So 71 individuals made up the Sanhedrin, and that goes back a chain of tradition all the way to Moses. These individuals were the authority on the land. They had criminal authority within Israel. They had civil authority. They had ceremonial authority. That was their jurisdiction. Now the Sanhedrin, um, the Pharisees would have been the minority in the Sanhedrin. Most within the Sanhedrin were called Sadducees, and there were a few rich aristocrats who may, some of them, because they were so wealthy, they, they paid to play. You know what I'm saying? So the Sanhedrin was made up of mostly Sadducees, a few of them were Pharisees, and there were a few aristocrats. See, the text makes it clear right from the gate that this um, Nicodemus uh, was not an ordinary man. If you look at tradition, Nicodemus was most likely one of the richest individuals in all of Jerusalem. He was a Pharisee, a judge in the highest court, and one of the richest men in Jerusalem. If you check out verse 10, look, look at this. Check out verse 10. Here's how Jesus puts it. This is really interesting. Can we throw verse 10 up on the screen? Jesus is like, yeah, Nicodemus, you're not an ordinary man. No, you are Israel's teacher. See, you can't see it in the English. But in the Greek, there is a direct article in front of Israel's teacher. So, so in the Greek, it's you are the Israel's teacher, like, you know, Ohio State, like the Ohio State. So many have concluded that this is Nicodemus's actual title in Israel. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you are Israel's top scholar in doctrine, in theology, in law. Nicodemus was a brilliant man. He was an intelligent man. He was very influential. And when he spoke, he rarely said anything dumb. 
So he's nothing like, like me, right? When he spoke, he spoke from an absolute position of authority. And when he spoke, people listened. And it's important to know that because nothing Nicodemus says in this text is ridiculous. There's a verse that we're going to come to that people say Nicodemus was ridiculous here. I'm going to show you how he wasn't ridiculous in what he brought up. So Nicodemus was a big deal. Now, I just love how John handles things in the word. And, and in verse 2, the text says, look at, look at this note. It says, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Okay, so, so he was the original, but in Nick at night, okay? The original Nick at night right here, okay? Nicodemus at night, Nickelodeon, right? Okay. Jesus, he came to Jesus at night. And the question you have to wrestle with at this point in the text is like, why would Nicodemus, this well-respected, rich, religious, enemy Pharisee, Come to Jesus by night. And you know, like in seminaries and like, you know, small groups, um, those that have the gift of teaching, they just, we just love to, to, to think, okay, why did Nicodemus come at night? And there's like a zillion suggestions. Some have said um, that Nicodemus came at night because like he didn't want his other Pharisee buddies to see him with Jesus because they, they might judge him. And Jesus, you know, he didn't want to be associated with Jesus. Others have suggested that, you know, like it was after hours. That's like a lame suggestion, right? Like Jesus is busy during the day. Nicodemus has a day job. You know, they're not on like, you know, uh, they're, they're working. They're working men. They're not collecting, okay? So, and if you're collecting, like, that's okay. $600 a week, I wouldn't go back to work, right? But that's besides the point. So there's a zillion suggestions. Uh, I, I do think an interesting one that is noted is that Jews considered it, especially Pharisees. This one's interesting. Jews considered it spiritual to study the scriptures late into the night. That was part of their rhythm. So it wouldn't have been totally um, uncommon for uh, Nicodemus to come. But when it comes to the question, why did he come at night? Do, do you know that we, we, we don't know because the text doesn't say exactly. But I'm telling you, this is what's awesome about some Pharisees. Because you hardly ever hear anything about Pharisees, right? Some Pharisees were really searching. They, they wanted to know God so bad. They wanted to know God. And in Nicodemus' case, Nicodemus had questions. See, if you have questions, right, it's so important to come with your questions, to get your questions that you have out. And Nicodemus was searching. You know, in chapter uh, 2 of John, if you, go, if you go back, right, I mean, at, at, at Passover, when millions of Jews would have been in Jerusalem, Jesus was performing signs and wonders. And so Nicodemus would have, have heard about this. Maybe he would have seen some of these signs and wonders. And, and listen, when, you, when, when God allows signs and wonders in your life, and if you have an open, searching, non-dogmatic heart, and when you see signs and wonders in, in, in your heart, it can, it can do something, and it could spark an interest in spiritual things, whereas you never had that before. And part of the reason John chapter 3 is like my life chapter is, is at 16, right? Like I had seen experiences in my life and I didn't stay still. I had a heart to search out things and to ask questions and to find answers. You know the downside to philosophy? My, my philosophy teacher um, said it from the gate. Philosophy is filled with questions and no answers. It's perennial. It's empty. Do you know the great thing about Christianity? Christianity 
is loaded with questions and scores of answers filled with hope. So Nicodemus probably kept rolling these events around in his mind. Okay, think of the events that, that lead you to want to search that God has put in your life. And you start asking questions like, what is this faith? And who is this person? Is he the Messiah? Is he a prophet? Who is this Jesus who John earlier cried out not once in chapter 1, but twice, look the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I, I, I um, heard a, a friend to me articulate that what's going on in America today, all of the uproar and all of the searching for truth and searching for justice is because there's a void. There's a big void on people's hearts and we're, we're so lost so when someone like John comes around and says, yeah, you see all that sin out there? Regardless of from what view you're coming out and John transcendence and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, John is filled with metaphor in his book. And I can't help but look at this phrase, knowing what I know about John and how he uses light and darkness, and this is one of the options that is given of why Nicodemus may have come at night. Could there be a deeper meaning? See, in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, John says, check this out, Jesus was the light of all mankind, Verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, John uses darkness and light again metaphorically. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Verse 20 says, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And Nicodemus, in the midst of metaphors in chapter one and in chapter three, he notes something that we have no idea why he includes in the text because he doesn't give it. Could it be, knowing John, that the deeper meaning could be here, that Nicodemus came by night literally, but in darkness spiritually. And that is a scary thought because nobody in that society was viewed as wanting to know more about God than Nicodemus. And it brings up the point that Nicodemus knew about God, was deeply religious, was raised in synagogue, knew the scriptures, but here's the scary part. But Dick Nicodemus did not know God. Can I put it this way? Nicodemus was religious but wasn't saved. The text says, and maybe for all of the reasons I listed out, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Now look at verse 2. Nicodemus said to him, I must note, check out his self-confident assertion here. He says to him, Rabbi, we the Pharisees, we the Sanhedrin, we the upper religious class, do, do you see the, the holier-than-thou confident assertion, the religiosity, we know stuff. We know things. We, we've been like, like we have the entire Old Testament memorized, right? We know that you are a teacher from God for no one could perform the signs you are doing 
if God were not with him. You know, we, uh, we heard that you, in chapter two, turned water into wine at a Galilean wedding. That's, that's a pretty cool miracle. We know that no one could perform these signs. Now, now this is what's so great. Check this out. Check out verse three. Look, look, at, look at Jesus' response. I love it. He's like, uh, Nicodemus, you don't know anything. You know nothing. All you know is facts. All you know is that's what you were raised in. You don't know anything. Look at, look at it. Jesus answered and said, and he uses a double amen. He like amens himself prior to his statement. He says, verily, verily, or amen, or amen, or truly, truly, I say to you. Okay, now a lot of times we put the emphasis here at the born again, but check this out. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, now put the emphasis here, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you don't know anything. Unless you are born again, you can't see. Later points, Jesus refers to the Pharisee as blind guides and hypocrites. Do you see, Nicodemus says, we know stuff. Like, listen, unless you are born again, you can't see anything. Note what he says, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, you cannot partake of the greatest eschatological event, the 1,000-year millennium, unless you are born again. I mean, nobody more than Nicodemus would want to be part of the kingdom of God. No one wanted to be part of end time stuff, eternal life, resurrection, more than Nicodemus. And Jesus here says, Nicodemus, no one can partake of any of that unless they are born again or born from above. See, there's so much emphasis in church, in religion, that we have to get everything cleaned up to see the kingdom of God. And Jesus is like, no, you, you, listen, you need to be born again. Born from above. Like this is something that you can't do. This is something you can't control. Later, he refers to the wind analogy. I mean, do, you, do we see what Jesus is doing here? By bringing up being born again, Jesus was exposing Nicodemus's religious hearts. By bringing up being born again, he, he was undercutting Nicodemus's whole belief system. By bringing up being born again, Jesus was implying that law-keeping, that being religious, wasn't good enough to see the kingdom of God. Do, do, do you see what Jesus is doing here? It's phenomenal. Like, Nicodemus, your religion is blinding you. Part of the reason that these verses, my life verses in here, right, resonate so much with me is because you're raised in something your entire life and you never question anything. And then you have a moment where you come face to face with God's word and your heart is exposed. And my whole upbringing to come to the realization that, that my approach to God was, was false, that, that I was trusting in my religion or my religiosity to save me and, and to come face to face and, and to realize, no, like, I need to be born again. 
And this is something only God can do in my life. See, a religious person does not always mean that they are a person of faith. Jesus is like Nicodemus. Listen, big difference. Big difference. You need to be born again or reborn or born from above. And then brilliant, intelligent Nicodemus comes back with a nice counter here. Check it out. Nicodemus says to Jesus, look at verse 4. So what you're saying to me, Jesus, look at where his mind goes. I have to start my life all over again. Because he undercut his 65 years of religious tradition. See, people poke fun at Nicodemus here like he doesn't get what Jesus was saying in verse 3. No, he got exactly what Jesus was saying. He's like, Jesus, well, what you're saying is, I have to abandon my tradition. I have to abandon that which I was raised in from a youth. How can a man do that? That's what he's saying in verse 4. How, how can a man start all over again? Verse 4 says, Nicodemus says, how can someone be born again when they are 65 years old? And then he gets a bit sarcastic, probably humorous, and knowing Jesus, they probably had a laugh together at this moment where Nicodemus says, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. He got exactly what Jesus was saying. The problem in Nicodemus' thinking is he was still thinking in terms of something he needed to do on earth, not something that needed to be done from heaven to earth. Nicodemus is thinking of things physically. Jesus is talking about being born again spiritually. Now, check out verse 5. Jesus answered that with this. Nicodemus, I see that I'm going to need to go to the Old Testament scriptures for you, and for you I will do that. Jesus says, verily, verily, I tell you. Think of this conceptual unity. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. If you notice in verse 3, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here he adds this water. What is this water here that he's referring to? And there's two classical interpretations given. One interpretation is that Jesus is referring to water baptism. That's not what Jesus is talking about here at all. There is nowhere in the Bible that water can wash away sins. Uh, it's an interpretation that I've often heard in Christianity, which is almost equally ridiculous, is he's saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born of water. That's physical birth. Come on, man. And spirit, that's spiritual birth. I, I think that's a ridiculous argument. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's like, Nicodemus, I want to remind you of something. I want to take you back to the Old Testament to remind you what I'm talking about here. And he takes Nicodemus back to a very famous Old Testament passage. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to comment on it. He's referring to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 and 27. 
Ezekiel 36 reads, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And verse 27, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And Jesus is like, Nicodemus, do you remember the valley of dry bones? There was nothing those bones could do to add new life, to add flesh. God had to resurrect those bones. And in Ezekiel 36, it references water and a new heart and a new spirit as something that God does, not something that man does. And Nicodemus, that's what I'm talking about here. You need to be born again. Like, you're in the valley of dry bones, and there's nothing you can do to change your life unless God resurrects you. Do you, do you see the connection? You also see it in Isaiah 44, verses 3 and 5. See, this water-spirit combo, it wasn't like John was like, oh, I forgot to add water, right, in, in verse 3, so I added it in verse 5. No, the phrase water and spirit is referring to the totality of this born-again experience. It's not talking about water baptism. It's not talking about being born first physically and then spiritually. In Ezekiel, which Nicodemus would have known this scripture, the language in Ezekiel, water and spirit, is referring to this new birth, this resurrected life. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, let me make this as clear as possible. You don't got to climb back into your mother's womb. You don't have to go back 65 years and start your religious experience all over again. Nicodemus, unless God resurrects you, unless you are born from above, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do you see why John 3.16 is so vital and it's not just a cardboard sign that people raise? Because that's how the transaction happens. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you are born again. I'm not talking about faking and bacon or church as a hobby, as Pastor Pete talks about all the time. It's a lame hobby. I'm talking about the moment you truly believe in Christ, you will be born again or born from above. Verse 6 says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but the Spirit gives birth. Spirit, check out verse 7. Jesus says, do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. Ezekiel 36, Isaiah 44. Then Nicodemus, or Jesus says to Nicodemus, let me illustrate this for you. Check out verse 8. He says, think of this analogy. Think of the wind. Both the wind and spiritual birth are mysterious in origin and movement. I want you to think about the, the weather channel, Nicodemus, uh, which, by the way, is the least biased news network on TV today, Weather Channel, right, right in the middle, except when that wind comes. And, the, you know, you ever see the guy, like the umbrella's blowing him, and then you see, just see a guy walk by? It's like, I want you to think about the weather pattern here. Look at verse 8. The wind does whatever it wants to do. I was reminded of that. Pastor Pete brings this experience up all the time. We were camping together and this wind that did whatever it pleases decided that it wanted to soak me with water that's laying in this 
camper awning deal, the wind came and went all over me and everything I was proposing to Pete about how we should plant Steamtown Church, to which he replied, I think that's what God thinks of our strategy. Nicodemus, you can't command the wind to come. It goes sovereignly where it pleases. It's not subject to human control. Look at, look at verse 8. And you hear its sound. But you don't know where it comes from and where it goes. It just happens to you. When, when you believe in Jesus, it, this resurrection I'm talking about, this new life, Jesus is talking about, it just, it just happens. And there's no human explanation to it, just like wind. I mean, think of wind. It's so heavenly. It's so refreshing. It's hot in here, and we got no wind. And would somebody give a donation for air conditioning at Steamtown Church? Jesus is like, think of the fresh, gentle breeze. Think of a storm. Think of a hurricane. Think of windsurfing, kiteboarding, sailing, paragliding. Wind is powerful. Wind is awesome. Wind is mysterious. I've often wondered if strong wind is actually a bunch of ninjas passing by like really fast. Jesus is like, think of the wind, Nicodemus. Remember, airplanes take off against the wind. Sailing ships use the wind. On the planet Neptune, winds can reach up to 1,500 miles per hour. Really smart guys and girls have said that. Think of the sound of wind. Think of President Donald Trump's hair flying in the wind as he's speaking in Old Forge. Wind is awesome. Wind is powerful. Wind is mysterious. And Jesus is like, the moment you believe in me, that's what being born again is like. It's awesome. And that's what happened in my life at 16. No human explanation or logical or rational explanation of why my life changed forever the moment I really accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And so many of you in here and online, if I gave you the mic, you can just talk about how Christ has resurrected your life and he gets all the glory, right? He gets all the glory, Jesus is like salvation. Being born again, the grace of God is a wind which always keeps blowing in the believer's life. It's something you never get over. It's always refreshing. What an incredible analogy. In the writings of John, this is cool, he uses the phrase, the word born, 28 times. 16 of these refer to the new birth. Six of the references to the new birth are in John's gospel and 10 are in 1 John. So he continues this language. I'm gonna read John 1, 12 and 13 because it's just such a cool verse to remember. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, note, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Such an awesome verse to read. And you're like, at this point, man, Nicodemus just got, like, you know, taken in a Bible debate. So what's Nicodemus going to say next? What's he going to counter Jesus with? And it's awesome. Look at this. Look at verse 9. Nicodemus says to Jesus, Huh? How can these things be? Like on Monday, I was with the youth group at Knobles, and Jason and I just got like schooled by a wooden roller coaster, just like G Nicodemus just got schooled by Jesus. 
And Jason and I, was like, it's like we were meant for each other in that moment, right? And like he looked at me with these freaked out eyes. If you have not seen his video of him on that roller coaster, incredible video. But Jason and I, like we met eyes and we said, how can this be? How is that wooden roller coaster, how is everyone not dying on these wooden roller coasters? It's incredible. How can these things, Jesus, how could this be? How can these things happen? You got to love Jesus' response next, right? He just goes with it. Look at at what he says next. (laughs) I, I don't know. It seems like a jab here. It says, Jesus answered him with so much irony. He says, are you the teacher of Israel? I mean, why are you so confused and surprised by what I am saying? Are you not the teacher of Israel? Remember, that was his title, most likely. And yet, you do not understand, you do not comprehend these things. Then he says, Truly, truly, in verse 11, I say to you, Nicodemus, remember back in verse 2, you used the we, 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 we language, right? Like, we the Pharisees, we, we know this, we you don't know nothing, all right? You know nothing. Well, Jesus here, interestingly, brings up the we language in verse 11. Look at what he says. He says, truly, I truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. You see how he countered Nicodemus? Nicodemus, we, we. Jesus says, who's, he, who's the we? He's referring to the old prophets of Israel. He's referring to Ezekiel. He's referring to Isaiah. Most likely, he's referring to the Holy Trinity here. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is referenced in John chapter 3. It's incredible. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. The implication is, Nicodemus, you don't know and you haven't Seen And Jesus here is filled with so much grace and love for the searching heart. He wasn't being arrogant here. Very important to bring that out. We bear witness to what we have seen, but you, Nicodemus, do not receive our testimony. What a powerful verse. Check out verse 12. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things the implied answer there is it's not happening then in verse 13 and 14 he has one more moment where he says Nicodemus I want to bring you back to Moses because maybe Ezekiel and Isaiah wasn't far back enough he says you remember Moses by the way Moses talked about a prophet that was to come and I'm the fulfillment of that. Remember Moses? Do you remember when God sent those snakes? And anyone that was bit by the poison of those snakes, do you remember what Moses had them do? He put a bronze serpent at the top of a pole. Nicodemus, anybody who just looked at that pole and believed was healed. Now, if you're Nicodemus, I mean, this is a dagger. This is the final moment where you are undone. And biblical evidence, the other two references in John referring to Nicodemus would make it seem one time he defended Jesus in front of the Pharisees. And then when Jesus died, he provided his tomb. I think this was the moment of belief for Nicodemus. He's like, Nicodemus, it is so easy to be saved. It is so easy to be born again. It is so easy to be filled with the hope of heaven and know where you are going when you die. Sin is the poison that has entered into the human condition. That is why there is so much chaos in 2020. And what sin does is it separates us from people. But Nicodemus, God has provided the cure. 
Unlike Moses, it wasn't a, a snake that was killed and put at the top. He sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. It uses the word ascended in this passage. In verse 13 and 14, he ascended his resurrection, ultimately his ascension into heaven. Nicodemus, if you believe in the Son of God, the Son of Man, check it out in verse 15, you will have eternal life. You will live forever. Do you see how easy it is to be saved? I had a friend this morning who brought up such a brilliant point. He's like, Christians need to be the number one people who are not afraid because we had a savior in the midst of death and pain and suffering, loved us and died on the cross and has provided us a way of salvation. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? How can these be? And then most believe by verse 16, we leave the story. We leave the story. And we get what's called the legal answer or the technical answer to what it means to be born again or how that transaction happens. John says this. For God to love the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever, anyone, rich, poor, broken, prideful, anyone, anyone, even anyone who believes in him will not perish, have everlasting life. And with this, I close. One day, throw up, throw up that picture. One day, uh, Matthew and I were in, uh, this is a picture taken in Lockport, New York. And it's a, it's a seaport um, village or town. And Matthew and I were, were, were walking across this bridge, and we, we stumbled upon, at the time, um, there's all these locks. That, you, know, you know how people put locks on bridges, okay? So we stumbled upon this John 3.16 padlock. And, 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 and for some reason, I couldn't get out to Matthew how much that verse meant to me. And here's what I wanted to say to Matthew, but you know, sometimes as parents, we just have a hard time getting the, the words out or it's just not the right moment because there's like a thousand locks on a bridge. And, but if I could have had that moment with my son, Matthew, this is what I would have said. Matthew, we found on this lock my life verse. I, like Nicodemus, was trusting in my religion to save me. I, like Nicodemus, my approach to God was just off and false. I, like Nicodemus, needed to be born again. And one day, Matthew, I heard John 3:16 for the first time in my life. For God so loved the world. I mean, think of the immensity of God's love for us that he gave us the best, his son, his only son, and he asked the least of us to just believe in him for our eternity. And the promise there is whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And that is an awesome God, that is a God that does for us all who come by faith through the Holy Spirit that we can never do for ourselves. And he gives us eternal life. And I said, Matthew, 
Today we found this padlock in Lockport, New York. When I was 16, I opened it and I found God and I found peace and I found hope. Keeping it real for years, I was trying to find God in religion and non-religion and that got old and that got frustrating. So I gave up. Too much pressure on me to fix it, save, coat, work. At 16, I was offered the key, and like many of my friends, I thought the key was too old, too outdated, too archaic, too rusty and boring. But for some unknown reason, I had a moment of belief. I took the key, I opened the lock, I found God. I mean, I was 16. What 16-year-old is looking for God? Like, seriously. So when I found this padlock, Matthew, I couldn't help but remember that moment. 22 years ago, and I wonder if there is someone here today or someone who is listening online like me who just needed to be offered the keys of faith and put that key into John 3.16 and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. It is the message that never gets old, and I remember it every single day of my life. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray, if there's anyone here, Lord, God, you have provided salvation. You can resurrect any life. I pray if there's anyone here that online or in person that has not accepted you as their Savior, I pray right now they would pray something similar to this. Lord, right now, I am searching. I'm going to take that key of belief and I'm going to put it in the lock of Jesus and I accept him as my savior. And Lord, your word says that the moment I believe in you, I will not perish, but have everlasting life. And Lord, this is the message that we grow in every single day of our Christian walk with you. God, thank you for being an amazing Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.